Welcome to New Life Midtown, friends. It's so great to have you. Typically, we would have a time where we exhort you in giving. But here's one thing I want to say. You're such a giving church. Y'all need, need to, like, say amen to that. You are. You may not realize that, but you're a giving church. You're a giving people. You're generous. You're gracious with the resources that God has given to you. And it's one of the things that actually enables us to be a presence here in this city. It's because of the faithfulness and the generosity of God's people. And so I just want to say, may the blessing of the Lord continue to remain on you. May wisdom be on you. May favor and promotion. May creativity rest on you as it relates to the stewarding and the expansion of your finances and your resources. God wants to give you more than enough so that you can fulfill the will of God in your life. And so that you can be a blessing to the world that's around you. I believe that. And so I speak that over you. We have four ways that we give around here. You can find those on the screens. You can find those uh, on the website. But I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness and your generosity. And I want to encourage you to keep it up. Continue to do it even in the midst of rising everything. Right? Continue to do it. Okay. So let's see where we're at this morning. If you're new with us today for the very first time. I'm Jay Duncan. I'm the lead pastor here, and I just want to welcome you. Friends, can we just give a big, strong hand clap to anybody who might be with us today for the very first time? We're delighted. We're delighted to have you with us. Those of you guys who are joining us online this morning, welcome, and thanks for tuning in to our service at 9 a.m. In fact, if you are here today for the first time, the doors that you just walked in, if you just keep walking through those double doors, you'll run right into a big station that's called our Welcome Center. And we have a team of people there that are eager to connect with you. In fact, even if you've been here for a while and you're not receiving our weekly email communication, I want to encourage you to go to our Welcome Center after service. And you can uh, give your email if you want to be connected with what's happening here on a weekly and monthly and a regular basis. We'll be getting communication out to you. And we're tinkering around with something new. I'm, I'm throwing a little video devotional, a little leadership nugget each week, and, and hopefully those get better and better and they become a source of strength and, and a blessing to you. All right, let us dive into the word this morning, Pastor Jonathan. Good morning, friends. Christ is risen. That's good stuff right there. Guys, yeah, so John's not here this morning, but I have a, a little thing I'd like to share with you uh, that I think he would be proud of if he were here. Sometimes if I'm really, if I'm carrying something or I'm, I'm in a real intense mood, which I mean, let's be honest, that's most of the time for me, <clears throat> I, I go to the bathroom and if I'm in a public place, I'll go to the stall and I'll shut the stall door and I'll just smile real big like this. And it's amazing what it does for, for myself internally. And I think, um, you know, we're, based on the worship and the prayer and Pastor Jade's message a couple of weeks ago, which if the prayer time today resonated with you, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But sometimes... We, there, there is a place for putting our head down and just pressing through. And then I want to encourage you, too, that when you come somewhere near on the other side, stand up and just smile. And it, it does something. It does something on the inside. Like, I, I found myself just standing over here with Brian, 
and I was in one of these moods. And Cedron says, raise your eyebrows, but I'm saying go in the bathroom and smile real cheesily. <laughs> and, and it just does something. It does something. So let's just take five seconds and just everybody smile real big. I'm not saying this because you were frowning. You weren't. Many of you were already smiling, but it makes me feel better. Guys, it is good to see you. It's good to be with you. We're in a series on who is God. We spent seven or eight weeks on who is God the Father, and now we are in week three of who is Christ the Son, or who is God the Son, who is Jesus. And to begin, I'd like to open with a quick couple of verses from Luke chapter 9. It'll be up on the screen, but if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 20, I'll give you four seconds to turn there. I'm a big fan of real Bibles, y'all, big fan of tangible Bibles. I don't know about you, but I get distracted when I use my phone Bible. A notification pops up, and three seconds later, I'm gone. So here we go. Luke 9, 18 to 20. Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do the crowd say I am? But then now what about you? Those who have been walking with me. At this point in the story in Luke, Jesus has already done a number of miracles. He's already taught quite a bit. So now is the moment of assessment, midterms, if you will. Midway through, where are we at? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is our question today. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Who is Jesus? For some, Jesus was a good man. Or for others, he was a man with special healing powers. He was, for some, a prophet as we just read in Luke chapter 9, some believed that he was John the Baptist, which is kind of odd because in certain times in Scripture they were in the same place at the same time. That's kind of weird. For some, Jesus is a threat to their way of life, a threat to their power, to their wealth, to the things that have made certain individuals who they are. For some, Jesus is nothing more than a ticket to a better afterlife. So our question this morning is, who is Jesus to us? For some of you, you will have immediate words that will pop into your head to fill in the rest of that sentence. But for some of you, it might be a little bit challenging. And it hit me as I was sitting down here this morning, I was thinking about this message and I was like, man, do I need to preach a different sermon? But the answer is no, I'm going to preach the same sermon. And I was thinking, part of what this series is designed to do, this series going back to the roots of our faith, exploring who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is helping those of us who have been believers for a really long time connect the dots. There's a lot of things in our faith, even for me, who's, I've been to seminary a couple of times, I've got... I like sitting in classrooms, apparently. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for 50 plus years. But there still come these times where I find myself and I'm like, I say this, 
I say Jesus is the Messiah or Jesus is the Son of God, but what exactly does that even mean? And if I can articulate what it means, how then does it actually touch my life on Tuesday afternoon when I'm in a meeting and I'm frustrated or when I feel overwhelmed or all these other things that we've been talking about? So part of the goal of this series is to help us connect the dots of our faith, the things that we say we believe, the things that we know we believe, but so easily forget why we believe them, how they affect one another, or how they touch our very lives. So I want us to think about all of the good that has been done in the name of Jesus. The building of hospitals. Did you know that the existence of hospitals is a Christian foundation? That Christians, thousands of years ago, 1,500 years ago or so, began the concept of hospitals because of the teachings and the identity of Jesus Christ. Some 35,000 Protestant church denominations. I don't know about you, that sounds astronomical to me. But if it's even remotely true, why is it true? It's true because there are that many people who take seriously the words of Jesus, oftentimes so seriously that they're willing to part with other Christians based on their interpretation, which I'm not sanctioning. I don't think there should be 35,000 denominations. But why have Christians found it necessary to do that? Because they take so seriously the words of Jesus. What else? Missionaries and martyrs. We sent out missionaries from this church not too long ago. People who had great lives here in Colorado Springs, who gave up so much to go to a place where they had to learn, or they are in the process of learning at least one other language, living at what is much closer to third world standards than our current standards in Colorado Springs. And why? Because they believe in the identity and the life of Jesus. Who do men say that I am? Then... Think of all the countless movies, books, songs, tattoos, profanities, all in the name of Jesus. All in the name of Jesus. I, I, I mean, we know that Jesus is prolific. But when you stop to think about how life in 2022, so much of our lives, unaware, are actually reflecting some part some element of who Jesus is and who Jesus was that we read about in the Gospels. Jesus is certainly the most impactful and influential human who has ever lived, but why? I want to suggest this morning that the significance of Jesus' life only mattered because of his identity as the Son of God. That of all the things that Jesus did, all the sermons he preached, think of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, all the provocative things that Jesus said, all of the claims that he made about himself, all of the healings, all of the exorcisms, his death and his resurrection, they matter why? Because of his identity. It's only good news that Jesus was raised from the dead because it is Jesus who was raised from the dead. Think about that. If it were Hitler that had been raised from the dead, I don't know about you, but to me, that's terrifying. That's atrocious news. That's not good news. 
but because it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was raised from the dead. It's the best news possible for all of humanity. Jesus' work is significant because of his identity. And this morning, we're going to explore the identity of Jesus. So who is Jesus? Well, the early church, after what we just read in Luke chapter 9, about 50 to 75 years later, the early church, after Jesus' ascension, is wrestling with this very question. Who do men say that I am? And once they got past the Messiah, then they really started to have to wrestle with the brass tacks of, okay, so what exactly does that mean? For a man to be God. For a man to be God's son. So these heresies started to pop up all over the place because Jesus is truly unique. The world has never seen and never will again see or experience someone with the identity of Jesus Christ. So there are these Christological heresies that start popping up that say things like this. Jesus wasn't really fully God at all. Or he wasn't God from the beginning. He was a man who God adopted as his son at the moment of baptism. Did you know that at, at times there were people, yes, there were people who believed that. That is one of the early heresies. That at Jesus' baptism, he was then adopted as God's son. Or then they would wrestle on the other side of this coin, they wrestled with his humanity. And some would say that he wasn't a true human. That he was God wearing a body like we wear costumes. Like God stepped into this costume, and the costume is a facade, because nothing internally is human. It's just a facade on the outside. Or there were one group of people, the Gnostics, who took that a step further, and they believed that his essence, he actually wasn't a body at all, but that he was more like a celestial being, an angel. He was like an angel. Or for us in 2022, it was like a hologram. That Jesus was not really flesh at all. He was appearing as flesh, but if you reached out to touch him, or he, did, he didn't have any essence to his body. These were the things that started to pop up in the first three or 400 years after Jesus' ascension because of the uniqueness of his identity. People had never experienced a true God-man before. So here is what the church believes. The Christian claim about Jesus is that he is fully God and fully man. And here's why this matters, okay? If Jesus is fully human, but not really God, then what we're saying is human suffering can atone for sin and bring about our salvation. That Jesus was just an arbitrary scapegoat. That someone needed to die and eeny, meeny, miny, moe, it was Jesus. Guys, that's not good news because that doesn't redeem any of our suffering. And then if, if Jesus is God, but not really human, then nothing about our human experience has been redeemed. And the resurrection doesn't mean anything for us because Jesus was never really like us to begin with. This is one of the reasons, well, these are two of the reasons that it is really important that we say, and that at least to some level we understand, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Catherine Tanner, a retired theologian that taught at Yale for a 
couple of decades, said, be careful not to think you can sort out where Jesus was acting humanly and divinely. This is another problem that led to some of these heresies, is people would say, well, in this moment, Jesus was acting out of his humanity, you know, when he fell asleep on the boat, but then upon waking up, he was acting in his divinity when he calmed the storm, right? When we do these kinds of things, and we parse this out in our minds, and many of you are going, well, I've never done that, but we have to be careful. We do that in subtle ways more frequently than we know. And we act like certain parts of Jesus is where he's being human and certain parts are where he's being divine. And there's a measure of truth to that. But be careful when you think you know and you understand. Because it's troubling for our own lives and the way that we follow him. Because what inevitably ends up happening happening is we justify away the parts that Jesus is calling into us into his life. We justify those parts away like his crucifixion, which I'm going to get to in just a moment. And then there are other parts of his life where we think, well, he's just acting out of his divinity. We should never even try to do anything like that, right? Jesus' life is a truly unique experience in human history. As God in flesh, he reveals God and redeems human nature and human experience. So I want to begin, and I'm going to try and breeze through this without it feeling like a lecture, but guys, this is one of the most central cornerstone parts to our Christian faith. So the first point I want to make is very simply, Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm going to parse these out with a few claims that I am making, well, that the church is making and I am restating to you. The first one is, to know Jesus is to know God because Jesus reveals the Father to us and he is himself fully God. John 1, I'm going to read a few verses. They will be up on the screen. This is a passage that we have all heard likely dozens, if not hundreds of times. But these verses we're about to read are the most striking claims ever made in human history, in the scriptures. These words that we are about to read is the most audacious thing any hum- that could be true of any human. Let's read In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is God himself, or who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. All right, so there was a lot of Really strong, beautiful language there, but I want to make it really simple for us. Number one, the Son was the preeminent Word of God. Preeminent just meaning existing before anything else. The Son who took on flesh and lived life, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was the preeminent, preexistent Word of God who has existed from the beginning, before anything else existed, when all that existed was God, Jesus was there. The word who created everything entered that creation to live as one of us. Think about that. 
the one who made everything condescended into that creation and assumed the life of a creature to live among us, to redeem our life. Number three, the son is in closest relationship with the father and has made the father known to us. This is, like I said, the most radical claim in all of scripture and I believe in human history. John 14, six and seven, if you look from basically John one until through John 17 at the end of the high priestly prayer, Jesus makes these kinds of striking claims about himself over and over and over and over again. John 14, he says, this is a passage you've all heard. I believe Pastor Jade read it last week. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, and here's the point, you do know him and have seen him. In John 1, we just read that no one had ever seen the Father. And then here we have Jesus saying, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, that's not the least bit confusing, is it? So what is Jesus trying to say? He's trying to speak divine language in humanese. He's trying to communicate with them that he is one with the Father, that there is no conflict between Jesus and his Father, and yet Jesus is standing in front of them in a body, in human flesh, and God the Father is not in human flesh. So Jesus is putting into language throughout the book of John, and then Paul does it a bunch of times later. We're going to read a few of those. He's trying to help them see that he is one in union with the Father, and that he perfectly reflects the Father, that Jesus isn't the good cop to the Father's bad cop. There were many of us who came to the faith with some kind of theology that says something like this. That God created all things good, man sinned, God got angry, God needed blood, so God sent his son to give his blood so that then we might be freed. That pits the father against the son. At least it shows nothing but contrast between them. But what Jesus says over and over and over again is if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That Jesus is as we will read right now, the perfect representation of the Father. The second claim, when the invisible God enters creation to live as a human, it looks like Jesus. Jesus is the icon, the image of God. Colossians 1, 15 and verse 19, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Think about that. The fullness of the pre-existent Godhead is dwelling in the body of Jesus Christ, who slept, who felt pain, who cried, who needed to eat, who needed to get away from his disciples. He needed that me time Pastor Jade was talking about a couple of weeks ago. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in the body of Jesus. Hebrews 1, another verse that reiterates the same point. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Last week, Pastor Jade said that Jesus was not original. And I think this is what he meant. 
I think what he meant is Jesus came not to express his autonomy. Jesus came to embody the Godhead. Jesus came to reveal to us the character, the will, the desires of his Father. That Jesus didn't come to express himself. Jesus didn't come to exert his independence. That everything Jesus did, every teaching, every miracle, every exorcism, every time he withheld his tongue, he was demonstrating the will and the desires and the way of his Father. Everything that Jesus did. Why does this matter? Jesus is not, as I said, the kind side of God. Jesus is revealing to us who God has always been. Brian Zahn, a pastor in Missouri, an infamous pastor in Missouri, for those who will know him, has this pithy statement that that he said that I, I heard and has always kept my attention. I think about this all the time. He has this statement. Here it is. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We haven't always known this, we being humanity, not like you and me, but we haven't always known this, but now we do. Humans before Jesus, as it says in the verses in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, God spoke to humans through the prophets and on one occasion through a donkey. God was trying to break through to reveal his character, his nature, and that's what we spent the first eight weeks of the series parsing out. Who is this God? What is he like? And then he sends his son, and his son reveals to them in real time in human flesh exactly who he is. And there is no conflict between Jesus the Son and God the Father. So Jesus' purpose and coming can be summed up in these two statements. You ready? Jesus came to live the divine life humanly so that we could live the human life divinely. I'll say it again. Jesus came to live the divine life humanly so that we could live the human life divinely. So said in gentler, more palatable words, Jesus came to show us what, is, what God is like and to redeem our existence that we might live in the life of God. Jesus came for those two purposes. Now, of course, there were lots of other sub-purposes, but everything Jesus did and everything he came to do, the purpose of the incarnation, is summed up in those two statements. He came to reveal God and he came to redeem our experience that we might live in the life of God. Jesus is God's intervention into the human problem of sin and death. If you remember, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned. And from that moment on, there is an awareness of distance between them and God. Because God approaches them in the garden and starts asking them questions when they've already begun hiding from God. They knew something was up. They knew something was different now that they had disobeyed and they had sinned against God. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve's lives who were touched, but it was the whole of human history, the whole of human existence. There is this reform doctrine called total depravity. And total depravity doesn't mean 
that humans are incapable of doing any good without God. That's not what it means. There's a lot of Christians who hear total depravity and they think that we can't do anything good if you're not saved or if you're not a believer. That's not what it means. What total depravity means is that every part of human existence has been touched and infected by sin. That our bodies succumb to sickness and death because of sin. That our minds are prone to sin because sin and death have entered, that our soul, that our spirit, that the whole of human existence has been touched by sin and death in such a way where we can't do anything to get ourselves out. So God sent Jesus as his intervention into the human problem of sin and death. This is one of the things that we mean when we sing this song, Is He Worthy? Is he worthy? He is. Why is he worthy? Not because Jesus was just an unusually good and moral human being, but because he is the son of God. He is the divine one who lived our human life perfectly, redeeming it for us. So let's move to Jesus is also fully man. Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. First John one, one through three, this is the message. I love this, this is beautiful. From the first day we were there, taking it all in, talking about Jesus' life. We heard it with our own ears, saw it with our own eyes, verified with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our very eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose, that what we have witnessed was incredibly this, the infinite life of God himself took shape before us. This is beautiful. So in the beginning of the gospel of John, we have what we read just a moment ago. And then there is this version of the echo in 1 John 1. Jesus lived a real human life, seen, heard, and touched by countless witnesses. Jesus had a human body, a human mind, a human soul, and human emotions. He ate, he worked, he slept, he prayed, he cried, and he felt pain. Jason Upton, one of my, my favorite artists and lyricists, has a song called, just like so many of Jason's, such an awkward title, but it's called, the title here is called A Hammer and an awkward nail. Do you have that? Yeah, Christian, you have this. Put these words up. This gets at the paradox of Jesus' life so beautifully. Did you straighten that nail with a magic tool? Did you ever get tired and want to change the rules, Jesus? What's amazing to me about a man like you is that you raised the dead and had to suffer too. Jesus wasn't walking around masquerading pain, faking, <laughs> acting like he's sleeping, conjuring up tears in front of Mary and Martha over Lazarus. Jesus' life, human life, was no easier than any of ours. A matter of fact, it was probably much more difficult because of the awareness he had of his own end. Jesus also is carrying the burden, the weight of the whole world, knowing that he is the one called and tasked to redeem the human experience. 
Jesus touched and felt all that we touch and feel. He thought like we think. He had relational struggles with people just like you and I did. The difference is they were never his fault. Most of ours (laughs) are mostly our fault. Most of ours are our fault. But did you straighten that nail? You know, Jesus is said to be a carpenter. Even if he wasn't, think about the imagery. He's hammering this nail. The nail gets crooked. God, nobody's looking. (laughs) A matter of fact, (laughs) let me pull out my cosmic nail gun here for a second. (laughs) Right? But no, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus assumed the entire human experience. And my hope and my prayer for you this morning, among other things, is that there would be some consolation in the midst of what you are going through, whatever it is. That Jesus didn't bypass that part of this. That Jesus didn't just skate through above the rest of humanity on divine power. That Jesus fully lived in the way that you and I fully lived, fully live. I hope we didn't live in the past tense. We are all still living, right? This is good. Hebrews 4, 15, the J.B. Phillips translation. I love this. For we have no superhuman high priest to whom our weaknesses are unintelligible. He himself, Jesus, of course, has shared fully in all our experience of temptation, except that he never sinned. He never succumbed. We don't have a superhero high priest. Think about that. It's easy to imagine Jesus as our superhero. Jesus, unlike all of the Marvel characters, which I don't even know their names. If Pastor Jade was up here, he could list all their names. But unlike all of those Marvel characters, he never straightened that nail with a magic tool. He did get tired and maybe want to change the rules, but he never did. Gregory of Nazianzus has this statement. That which is not assumed cannot be healed. He's a fourth century Cappadocian father, one of my favorite ancient theologians. And this line is infamous almost throughout, it's it's ubiquitous almost throughout the entirety of, of the Christian faith as a way of stating why it's so important that Jesus didn't straighten the nail with a magic tool. Why didn't Jesus, just when nobody was looking, just like take it a little easier on himself? Because knowing that at the end, it's going to be a lot harder on him than anyone else. But he never did that because the entirety of the human experience needed to be lived, it needed to be assumed by the divine one in order that it would be redeemed for you and for me. If Jesus had skated by above humanity, masquerading as a human, but not really fully living the experience, then our experience is not redeemed. It's not really touched because it hasn't been assumed, as that quote says. It's really, really powerful to think about it. I'd like to call you to write it down. Christian, if you could put that back up. Write that statement down and meditate on it. That which is not assumed cannot be healed. That which Jesus' life did not assume cannot be healed. The curse of sin and death came through Adam and infected every 
part of humanity. So Jesus, therefore, lived a fully human life in order to fully redeem human nature. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, in this famous passage where Paul is waxing eloquently on the resurrection, and he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. This is what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago in the message about God's faithfulness, that Jesus is now resurrected as the first fruits, and that is the hope for you and for me that what is now true for Jesus will one day be true for all of us. This is one of the verses we get that from. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. That is beautiful. When Adam sinned, the whole of our experience was touched by sin. Remember what I said about total depravity. Therefore, Jesus lives it all. He assumes the whole of human experience that when he is resurrected, the whole of human experience is resurrected with him. And that is what we believe to be good news. Jesus lived the divine life humanly so we could live the human life divinely. We were made for becoming like Christ. Jesus isn't just a human, but the prototypical human. Jesus is the blueprint for humanity, the one who is in one way doing what we could never do, but while he's doing what we could never do, he's making it possible for us to live in the way that we never could have lived before him. That Jesus, there is this statement, when I, when I was young, I don't know if it was actually preached or if I just picked it up, but it was that Jesus died so I wouldn't have to. Jesus died so that I wouldn't have to. And there's a wee measure of truth in that, meaning that Jesus' death did something that I could never do. And even if I were crucified and died in the exact same way that Jesus did, my life wouldn't do a thing. So there is a way in which Jesus' death does something that our death could never do. But I think a truer statement is that Jesus died to show us how to. Jesus died to show us how to. That everything Jesus was doing was making it possible for us to live the way that God had designed and called us to live before sin and death had ever entered the world. But of course, sin and death messed it up. So man is constantly struggling, constantly hitting our head up against a wall, trying to live this life in the way that God has commanded. And if you don't believe me, just read the Old Testament. And you see God calling these people to live in accordance with his commands. And it seems like they're unable to for more than about five minutes. So Jesus comes to assume the whole experience and do what we could never do for ourselves. But in doing so, he makes it possible for us to live the way that we were called to live. There is this verse that I promise, I almost said swear, I promise I had never seen until about two years ago. Guys, I, my dad was a pastor. I grew up in the church. I promise you somebody inserted this into my Bible just a couple of years ago. <laughs> 1 Peter 2.21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example 
that you should follow in his steps. That you should follow in his steps. Brian, if you would come, we're going to move toward the table here in just a moment. Jesus' life opened up a way for you and I to live. Jesus' life made it possible for you and I to live in union with God. Jesus' life and death and resurrection has made it possible for you and I to follow him into the way of Jesus. And it is only in following that way that we find and we experience the life of God. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture we're gonna read as we prepare our hearts to come to the table comes from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, where he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Every one of us in the room want the resurrection life of Jesus. I promise you, you want it, even if you don't know you want it. Here's the thing. There is no way to truly follow Jesus and to truly live in the life that he opens up for us in God without also following him to death. That if we want to know him in the power of his resurrection, that we also will have to learn to come and follow him in the fellowship of his sufferings. The good news, church, is that it doesn't end in suffering. That every ounce of our human suffering is redeemed. And just as now Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, one day we all will be resurrected. And we will look back on our lives, and I don't know exactly what we'll know or what we'll remember, but we will look back on our lives and we will be amazed at the faithfulness of God. And we will be amazed at the way that Jesus has redeemed things that we thought were impossible to redeem. But to get to that place, we are called to follow Jesus into his suffering. If you would stand with me, I wanna mention one thing before we come to the table on our way to coming to the table. A couple of weeks ago on Thursday morning, we were at uh, ministry development training as we have on all of the Thursday mornings when it didn't dump snow on Wednesday night, which has been almost none the last few weeks. But we were in this ministry training and Dr. Michelle Anthony, and I believe Rachel mentioned this on Sunday night, she got up to talk about discipleship and she read the verse where Jesus tells the disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Those are the words of Jesus. And she said so much of Western understanding of discipleship goes wrong because it skips the first two parts and starts with follow me. We think that we can follow Jesus without denying ourselves and without picking up our cross. Jesus doesn't call us to carry his cross. He calls us to carry our cross daily. And one of the ways that we carry our cross is by carrying one another, as Pastor Jade had us do a few moments ago in prayer. The part of the Christian burden, if you will, the yoke of Jesus, is learning to carry one another, and learning to carry one another's pain. 
in the way that Jesus had to learn to sit across the table from Judas and give him Holy Communion. There is a calling of forgiveness that is a taking up our cross. There is, for some of us, a carrying physical, emotional, mental infirmities. And we pray for healing. For some of us, we will be healed. For some of us, we will not be healed until we are resurrected with Christ. That is a cross that we carry. It is sometimes being wronged unjustly. Words being spoken against you that are untrue about you. People taking things from you that are rightfully yours. And you laying your vengeance and your revenge at the feet of Jesus. These are all ways that we practice following Jesus, denying ourselves and taking up our cross. So this morning, let us be reminded that Jesus made it possible for us to do that by doing it first himself. So come to the table of the Lord and receive of the body and blood of Christ. If you will come and uh, receive the communion elements, go back to your seat and we will partake together. receive communion every week and of course it's as we say almost all the time it's such a multifaceted sacrament such it's a, it's a practice that is endlessly explorable but my hope for us is that when we come forward we are struck with deep gratitude and thanksgiving for the work of Jesus that he did on our behalf but we are also confronted with this is what it will take for us to follow him truly into his life. That most of us in the room will not have to give our lives physically. Hopefully, most of us will not. But we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. And Jesus embodied that perfectly. With the bread wafer in your hand, if you would crack it, the Apostle Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, church. Let us receive the body of Christ broken for you and me. With the cup in our hands, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, let us receive the blood of Christ shed for you and for me.
God, for these good gifts. And let us celebrate and be reminded that every good gift comes from the Father above. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let it be. Church, thank you for joining the body of Christ in worship this morning. And I pray that you would go in the peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. Go, church, and be the body of Christ in your world.